0: So, as I understand from Jenny, the brief is to uh, mainly talk about sort of my career, how I got to where I am now, um, which is a very sort of disconcerting brief to be given as a scientist. So, I thought I'd start a bit more in my comfort zone and tell you just a little bit about uh, some of the science that I do so that I could get into the flow before talking about me. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so as Jenny said, I head the plasticity group at the FIMRIP Centre, so we're broadly interested in how the brain changes um, in response to experience. And the types of experiences that we're interested in are quite varied. Um, Some of them are experiences that healthy adults might face in everyday life, such as learning a new skill, like learning to juggle or learning to play the piano. And what we're often doing is using Uh, non-invasive brain imaging, so particularly MRI, to look at how acquiring those skills changes the gross structure, particularly of the human brain. So we've shown, for example, that when you, as an adult, learn to juggle, that changes the structural properties of the white matter fibre pathways of the brain, and we think that that's potentially related to activity-dependent myelination. We're also interested in various um, clinical questions. So, for example, how to rehabilitate uh, patients who have suffered a stroke. So we're interested in rehabilitation of motor abilities after stroke. And in particular, trying to exploit what we know from neuroscience and apply those principles about how the brain learns and how plasticity occurs, apply those to the problem of rehabilitation, because we see rehabilitation very much as relying on those same experience-dependent plasticity mechanisms as learning in the healthy brain. Um, We're interested in uh, changes in um, sensory input. So, for example, we study amputees, upper limb amputees, and how that changed sensory input, but also the adaptive way in which people adapt to that uh, change in their um, body maps onto changes in their brain. Um, And we're also interested in lifestyle Factors. So things like exercise, we all know that we should be exercising more, Uh, we know that very well from a um, cardiovascular point of view, but also it's increasingly clear that physical activity and cardiovascular activity also helps with brain health. So we have a programme looking at age-related cognitive decline and dementia and how introducing physical activity can potentially um, slow cognitive decline and slow brain atrophy with ageing. So that's sort of very broadly the remit of my group. I have a group of around 20 scientists up at the FIMRIB Centre, PhD students, postdocs, mainly sort of psychology and neuroscience backgrounds, but also some medics. Um, Occasionally a mathematician or an engineer um, will be involved in specific projects. Um, So that's my science and what I do. How did I get to here? Um, Well, I moved around a bit as a child, but spent most of my childhood in Birmingham. This is 1980s Birmingham. Um, Are there any other Brummies in the audience at all? No, you see, there never are. In Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if you're looking for underrepresented groups in Oxford academia, then Brummies are a main target, but that's another um, issue. So I grew up in Birmingham, went to the local comprehensive school there, really hated science, thought it was very dull and boring, dropped all science that I could at every opportunity, so ended up leaving school with just a GCSE in physics, was my only science qualification, um, applied to Oxford. Um, as a student and like any sort of self-respecting teenager um, wanted to study deep and meaningful questions about the meaning of life so applied to do philosophy and psychology um, at university Um, had really very little idea what any of those subjects was so at my philosophy interview um, I remember so I'd been doing quite well actually up to this point and then the philosophy tutor asked if I had any questions and I said uh, so Um, do we just read other people's philosophy or do we get to make up our own? (laughs) But then amazingly, they let me in anyway, but then uh, probably um, had second thoughts when in Freshers' Week I trotted off to Blackwell's with my reading list for philosophy and went up to the desk and asked if they had anything by Descartes. Um, which was also quite embarrassing in hindsight but anyway I stuck at philosophy really really enjoyed it but couldn't quite see the point of philosophy so by the end of the first year I decided to drop the philosophy and focus on psychology and found that surprisingly what I really really enjoyed was the more scientific aspects of psychology which was completely at odds with my school experience of science which had been very non-motivating and dull so I discovered that what I really liked was um, science and in particular neuroscience and I Obviously then had to make up for my complete lack of scientific training up until this point. Um, so I applied to do the uh, four-year neuroscience course, which is still running. I think I was in the second year of that course. Um, and that really provided me with a fantastic introduction to some of the basics of, of neuroscience. Um, so it's a four-year master's plus PhD program. And coming out of that, I did my DPhil um, with Paul Matthews at the FIMRIB Centre using imaging to study uh, plasticity after stroke. So particularly looking at how patients recover after stroke, to what extent healthy brain can take over the function of damaged brain. Um, So that got me into the questions of plasticity. I then was very lucky to have a series of um, fellowships from the Wellcome Trust up until this point. So first of all, straight out of my PhD, managed to get a training fellowship in mathematical biology which were fantastic things. that I don't think they do anymore um, but that allowed me to get much more experience of the more methodological side of brain imaging in particular to exploit what were these, at that time, new and emerging techniques of diffusion imaging and tract, tra- tract tracing. So if you like in vivo Track tracing, non-invasive ways of following fiber pathways in the human brain that allow you to produce very pretty pictures like this, but also allow you to get a new window on brain anatomy um, that previously would only be possible to do in tracer studies in animals. So that was scientifically a really useful time for me, and it was very lucky because I was it was being in the right place at the right time. I was in at the beginning of this new and emerging field. And at the time, it was mainly really methodologists, it was mainly um, engineers and physicists who were in that field. There were very few neuroscientists. So there was lots of opportunity to make a name as somebody applying these new emerging techniques to a neuroscience question, which was fantastic for me. Um, Also during that period, I did very briefly stray away from Oxford. So my entire career has been in Oxford. I'm a very stereotypical Oxford academic, been here since a student. I did manage to... Survived uh, six months in Montreal, uh, went to Montreal as part of this fellowship at the Montreal Neurological Institute, which was a really good um, opportunity. It was summertime, so I timed that well and got some new skills and also got a bit more insight into other labs and other institutions and North American university systems and that kind of thing. So that was a very useful period um, in terms of my training. Another piece of luck, good luck, in a way, that happened to me at that time, uh, was that my mentor, who's a close friend and colleague and mentor, Paul Matthews, actually left at that point in time, which in hindsight was very um, lucky for me in my career in many ways because, as many of you will know who've been around, uh, having one's mentor or PhD supervisor around in the same lab um, makes it maybe more difficult for people to perceive you as independent from... That mentor. So in a way for me it was great that Paul went on um, and took up a position elsewhere. We still collaborate now and um, have a fantastic relationship but it was actually quite convenient for me that he moved on. I also practically it was uh, quite lucky for me because I effectively inherited a number of his grants and students and so was sort of given a ready made group. Um, which was a bit of a mixed blessing because it wasn't perhaps what I would have chosen as a portfolio of things, but in terms of very quickly learning to supervise students and manage budgets and be responsible for grants, etc., it was a very steep learning curve for me, which meant I was quickly able to um, take responsibility for things like that myself. Um, After that, I... I uh, managed to get a, a career development fellowship from the Wellcome, so their intermediate fellowship, which is now what they call the Henry Dale Fellowship, that they do jointly with the Royal Society. Um, this was a really great opportunity for, for me to cement um, sort of my own independent research group. I was able to take what I'd learned in terms of imaging methods and start to move towards designing new Um, intervention therapy so in particular using brain stimulation so here's illustrated transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS now we tend to use the electrical stimulation that I was talking to Jenny and others about this morning um, which are basically non-invasive ways of altering the excitability of the cortex and the idea behind them is that you can Effectively, prime the brain so that it's more receptive to learning and plasticity. So, we apply this particularly in the context of rehabilitation um, and have shown that you can boost the effects of a rehabilitation intervention by delivering it in conjunction with this type of brain stimulation. But you could apply it to learning or to performance enhancement of sports training or whatever you wanted to. Um, another Important life event during this period is that I had these uh, two babies who are now five and seven. So I had two daughters during that career development fellowship, which is a very common sort of time. I remember going to one of the welcome meetings. They have these annual meetings for all their fellows. And the first year meeting of this, um, people who are on these CDFs, almost 50% of the women were either pregnant or on maternity leave. Or had obviously seen this five-year window of opportunity to of, of relative security to uh, get moving and um, start trying to f- slot the family into their... Um, careers. So since then in 2010 um, I got the senior research fellowship that I hold now and what I'm trying to do now is expand things a little bit and in particular so we've done a lot of studies using structural imaging to show how the brain changes with learning or experience but one of the frustrating things about these neuroimaging measures is that they can tell us that something's happened at a particular point in the brain but they can very rarely tell us what it is that's changed so for example when we had these people who we trained to juggle and we could see that white matter microstructure had changed we didn't know whether that reflected changes in the number of axons, their myelination, their diameter, Um, their packing density. So now what I have as well is a parallel program in rodents in whom we can do the behavioral manipulations, not juggling, but a rodent-friendly version of that, do the imaging, and then follow up with histology so we can see what is it um, at the cellular level that's driving the changes that we see on the MRI scans. Um, So that's been a very powerful um, new extension to the lab, although also very difficult to sort of move outside of one's comfort zone and and try something a little bit uh different so um that's sort of the summary of how i've got to where i am um now and i understand that also i'm uh encouraged to share with you any tips that i've um, picked up along the way in terms of how to juggle different (coughs) responsibilities and how to um manage to uh Carry on a career in, in science. And obviously, I think one of the big issues for um, many women in particular, in, but also men embarking on a career in science, is how to achieve a healthy work life balance and how to balance family commitments with scientific commitments. Um, my take on this is very much uh, not in line with this sort of idea. So I think it is. Um... <laughs> what I'm always telling the people in my group both men and women that it that it's we should really move away from the whole idea of a long hours culture and presenteeism and that they shouldn't be working all their weekends and all their evenings and they should take vacations and that uh, really it's important to um, not spend um, every hour at work and this is something that personally I only realized when I had children so when you have A baby, obviously, that places massive constraints and you suddenly have to spend plenty of time um, at home with the family. But I realised in doing so that I'd been a bit of a fool in not having had that realisation earlier and that one shouldn't wait until you've got a family to... Uh, take action to maintain a healthy work-life balance and even pre-children or even if you um, never end up having children it's very important I think to be able to have a good balance between your working life and um, the rest of your life and another thing that I found is that uh, when I was forced to constrain my working day to fit into a smaller number of hours I was actually far more efficient in those hours than I had been as a PhD student or postdoc when I could effectively work every hour if I wanted to Um, so the work sort of expands to fill the time that you give to it um it's also one of the fantastic things about academia is the flexibility that it offers us so i think uh you know many academics are, do have to work very hard and do get very stressed with all of the things that they have to do and they have to manage but one of the fantastic advantages of this career relative to many other professional careers is that In the main we're largely in control of our own time and it's very rarely absolutely urgent that things have to be done in in a particular time of the day obviously there are some exceptions to that but a lot of our workload can be done at a time to suit us so I think that um, it's fantastic if you can foster the um, flexibility both yourself and your colleagues to be able to fit the work in around other commitments so I for example at least twice a week finish work at three o'clock so i can go and pick my children up from school and then on those days i might do a bit of work in the evenings um i never work at weekends and i sort of want to keep the weekend time for my family and i think it's important to have a a clear division between the two in terms of that i think um as well we should avoid this type of uh, scenario um and that the it is very difficult to that kids aren't very receptive to this idea of sort of Urgency and trying to fit them into small amounts of time around your other commitments. And certainly, in my experience, um, I'm sure that my kids—what they appreciate—what what they appreciate is not so much the like three-hour trip to Legoland that you've managed to squeeze in on a Saturday afternoon, but what they appreciate is the sort of very slow, dull, everyday things. You know, the morning routine before you go to school, them not being hassled out of the door, the being being there to pick them up at three o'clock at the school gates. It's the you know, having a day at half term where they never have to get out of their pyjamas. It's that sort of sort of um, low, not this quality time in short bursts, it's that long drawn out sort of everyday time that they tend to appreciate and we're lucky in having, in most of us, in having the flexibility to be able to do that and then fit work around times which are more compatible with um, family life. Um, and I think that this also, importantly, this applies not just to kids, it applies to partners, it applies to ageing parents or various other family commitments. I think prioritising people who can't be slotted into our diaries is important and then slot in work uh, around that wherever possible. Um... This sort of principle also applied in my paternity leave, so I took two lots of maternity leave, obviously, with my two kids. I had about seven months off for each of them. Um, I was totally naive for the first one. I thought, yeah, well, hey, seven months off work, I've got all this time. I agreed to examine a thesis um, in Cambridge, And when my baby was, I think, four weeks old... I had to drive. I had a nightmare journey. Had to drive to Cambridge around the M25 with the baby and a friend. Obviously, who had to look after the baby while I was in the viva, I Had to make sure the viver was just long enough to fit in between feed. And it was, it was a totally <laughs> ridiculous situation. That I have. I don't know why I thought that was feasible, but I think I was just very, very naive about what it actually involved. So, after that, and for my second maternity, I very much wanted to have a separation between looking after my kids versus doing work and I've I've just learned that for me the two things do not mix and I have to find time for work and have that as separate than time for the family so in both cases I think when the children were about maybe two or three months old I took um, half a day a week because I had PhD students obviously and people who were relying on me they can't you can't just stop the lab for six months while you disappear so I took half a day a week from about two or three months when my husband had the um, baby and I would go in in order to meet with the PhD students. But apart from that, I didn't do any work at all during those um, periods of maternity leave. Um, Also along those same lines, because of personally being keen to have this clear distinction between work and home, I'm sort of quite uh, fussy about not trying trying not to let work encroach on the time that I'm at home. So trying not to get distracted by things. I'm... um, find it very difficult to become aware of things and not think about them so i won't check my emails for example wherever possible when the kids are there because even if i'm thinking i'll just spend five minutes checking that it's not five minutes it's five minutes and then you spend the next half hour worrying about the email that you saw from somebody who was stressed so i prefer to be in a sort of denial state of um unawareness and then i'll deal deal with it when i've got time to properly deal with the situation similarly with holidays i think it's important again to draw a line not to take work with you to have um clear time where you're not uh, at the beck and call of, of work related demands <laughs> and also i think that for both for all of these things whether it's you know working reasonable hours not being on you know moment by moment email contacts you're always available to people when you're on holiday being on holiday i think it's very important for all of us and particularly as you become more senior and have people looking to you as an example i think it's important that all of us are very open and honest at what, that that's what we do i know that there are some people both men and women who might take advantage of this flexibility but they try and do it sort of surreptitiously because of this feeling that you know you'll be seen as a bit flaky if you seem to go home at three o'clock to go and pick your kids up from school whereas i think it's if everyone was sort of open about that being a perfectly reasonable way to achieve the work that needs to be done. It would give people a clearer view of what options are available for how they manage to um, manage their day. And that brings me to the clip, which hopefully we now have the technology for, which is so occasionally, if you get a group of Oxford academic mothers together in a wine bar and they start talking about their experiences of maternity, leave and birth and pregnancy, quite often it starts to remind me of this clip. (coughs) So you get the idea. <laughs> so yeah, I sometimes find that there's a sort of competitive, um, hardcore approach to maternity, pregnancy and and uh, juggling, which I personally don't do. So I think it's important that people see a range of things. You know, you don't have to pop the baby out in your lunch hour and be back at the lab. You know, it's uh, take the time to do things properly and you only get a very small number of opportunities to, to do it and it's important to feel that you've... Given it the time that uh, that it needs, um, which again brings me to the to the point of sort of setting an example for others. So if you do manage to break through the glass ceiling, and you know, if you do manage to climb the ladder a bit and be have people who are you know students or postdocs who are who are looking up to you as a as a mentor, then um, I think it's important also to facilitate them. It's sort of tempting a bit. If you've climbed up the ladder, it's a bit tempting to then sort of just pull it up after you and say you know i managed it therefore you should manage it too and i think it's important to recognize that um you know people again both men and women struggle with how best to climb that career ladder and so trying to uh facilitate people and to avoid also repeating any mistakes that your own bosses or supervisors or mentors might have made in the past i think just like we all turn into our parents when it comes to parenting Mm -hmm. we all have a bit of a tendency to turn into our phd supervisors when it comes to supervision and sort of reiterate the mistakes that they made so try not to um, lose the insight into what it's like to be at those lower stages of the ladder uh, and try and um, encourage people in that way. Um, Then uh, another little insight that I wanted to give you came from a friend so I met the other day so this is to do with how to what extent we should Talk to one another and learn from each other's examples. So I think generally it is really useful to talk to other people in a similar situation to you and to get insights from how other people have managed, their, um, have managed things. But a bit like the Monty Python sketch, it also can be a little bit dangerous to start doing too many comparisons to other people. And I have a friend who recently returned to work um, after having twins. She's already got a two and a half year old, so she's got three children under three uh, at home and back to a lectureship and she was struggling a bit with trying to keep on top of things and point and made the point to me that there was what was particularly difficult was seeing that people who she did her postdoc and phd with were now sort of off on a trajectory that she was quite a long way behind so whereas they started off on the same path she was inevitably now somewhat behind them but she said that she'd taken she was following the example of the parable of the deaf mice climbing up a spike which I'd never heard of. I think it was translated from her uh, native country which was not here. And so this very useful, I think, parable was uh, loosely that there was a group of mice trying to climb up a spike and the only mouse who made it to the top of this spike was the deaf mouse because All of the other mice were too busy paying attention to what everybody else was doing and being distracted by everybody else's progress or lack of progress, but the deaf mouse just got on with it and made its way to the top of the spike. And I thought that was very wise words from uh, this woman who just realised that for her, what worked was just to get her head down and get on with it and not be too distracted by what was going on around her. Um, Another thing that I've learned, and I think an important point to make, is that when thinking of... So obviously... here as in many other departments there's a lot of attention being paid now specifically to women in science and things like Athena Swan have made us address all of these various issues to do with women in science and much of that I think is very positive and is very good but as well I think there is a bit of a potential for it to set up a sort of um, bit of adversity which I think is uh, can be unnecessary so I think sometimes Conversation it ends up um, slipping into stereotype on both sides. So I think it's important for everybody to keep in mind that in the end of the day, everybody's individuals. There are some very bullying, domineering female bosses. There are some very uh, gentle and uh, encouraging uh, male bosses. And that there are a lot more to us than uh, than our gender. So it's important to not set up. Um, things as being too adverse or, or competitive between the sexes, but more to try and facilitate things for everybody so that uh, everybody's career development is um, is encouraged. And then the, the last point that I wanted to make um, was to do with, particularly to do with Oxford, not to do with being a woman, but to do with Oxford and, and being recognised or not being recognised for your um, contributions that you make. So. I think here we aren't aren't very good at recognising... So one of the great things about Oxford is this academic freedom, and that seems to be what everybody here really values, the fact that often you're left to get on with things and pursue your own furrow and have freedom to um, follow the questions that you're interested in. A downside of that is that you might feel nobody's got the slightest bit of um, insight into what you're doing, all these amazing discoveries that you're making and that you're overlooked in terms of your um, efforts. I think that because of... So that's the flip side of this um, good thing of, of academic freedom. But I think because of that, you need to um, put yourself forward for things. If you're not getting put forward for things, whether that's you know, promotions, awards or whatever it is, we tend to think that's because you know, some other being has looked at us decided we're not worthy of this accolade and therefore decided not to invite us to do it the reality is probably that nobody has a clue what we're doing one way or the other whether it's good or bad everybody is really busy and that you not being um, put forward for things or encouraged for things is not a reflection on on you because people aren't just aren't paying enough attention to what you're doing. So I think, therefore, you need... It's up to you to sort of put yourself forward and to get yourselves, no, to get yourselves noticed for things and to ensure that people who are in um, decision-making positions uh, know about you and know about what you're doing. Um, and then along similar lines, uh, another thing that I would encourage anybody to do is to avoid thinking uh, in terms of a sort of them-and-us mentality. So, again, at this institution, it is very... Confusing and archaic, and so for that reason, I think m- many of us, even people in very senior positions, tend to think there's a sort of shadowy them who run the place, and then there's all the rest of us who don't have any in- understanding of what's going on. Whereas I think instead, you should uh, think of yourselves as being part of this institution. You know, we're all potentially fu- future leaders of parts of this institution and therefore we should try and engage with it as an institution try and understand how on earth it works and trying to and try and think constructively about how we can change things rather than sort of grumbling at the water cooler about how they're not uh, doing things properly you know we are we're all part of it and so we've all got a role to play in terms of trying to uh, steer things um, and be constructive that's all of my insights thank you very much (laughs) thank you